0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the August 6th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, & Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. California and 28 other states have reached a $151 million settlement in a lawsuit alleging that San Francisco's McKesson Corporation inflated prices for hundreds of prescription drugs. California will receive about $24 million out of this settlement. The agreement with McKesson, one of the largest drug wholesalers in the country, settles allegations that the company deliberately inflated drug prices by as much as 25%. Authorities claim that McKesson inflated the prices of more than 1,400 brand-name drugs, including commonly prescribed medications such as Adderall, Allegra, Ambien, Celexa, Lipitor, Neurototin, Prevacid, Prozac, and Ritalin. McKesson said the claims against the company are without merit. But given the inherent uncertainty of litigation, it determined that its settlement was in its best interests. The settlement stems from a 2005 whistleblower lawsuit that alleged that McKesson inflated average wholesale prices reported to First Data Bank. Many state Medicaid programs and the Workers' Compensation Official Medical Fee Schedule use First Data Bank information to set payment rates for pharmaceutical reimbursement. The federal government settled its portion of the lawsuit for more than $187 million in April. In addition to California, states covered in the settlement are Arkansas, Colorado, Delaware, Florida, Georgia, Idaho, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Maine, Michigan, Minnesota, Nebraska, Nevada, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, North Carolina, North Dakota, Pennsylvania, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Vermont, Washington, West Virginia, and Wyoming. A new panel decision, the one involving Linda Rofton, Lofton v. the County of Sacramento clarifies who can select the QME specialty when neither party objected to the opinion of the PTP, and the QME panel was ordered by the work comp judge. Linda Lofton sustained an industrial injury to her neck and shoulder. The employer sent her a notice that she had received her last permanent disability payment, and that if she disagreed with the decision, she may request a panel of QMEs but she did not request a QME panel. The parties then submitted stipulations with a request for a 5% permanent disability award based upon the evaluation of the treating physician. The work comp judge disapproved the stipulations. At an MSC, the work comp judge ordered the unrepresented applicant to obtain a new QME panel, stating that applicant had the right to select the specialty of the panel. The employer filed a petition for removal contending that discovery should have closed at the MSC because applicant did not object to the employer's declaration of readiness to proceed and that the employer has the right to choose the specialty for the QME panel because applicant failed to request one. The WC panel agreed with the report and recommendation of the work comp judge that pushing a case to trial on an incomplete record would constitute an extraordinary circumstance exception contained in the regulation otherwise closing discovery at an MSC. With respect to the failure of applicant to request a QME panel, the WCAB found that there is nothing in the present record to indicate that she understood her options including obtaining a QME panel until the MSC, or that she understood her duty to object to the DOR if she did not want discovery closed at the MSC. Therefore, the WCAB panel found that the work comp judge correctly decided that discovery did not close at the MSC. With regard to the choice of the QME specialty, The opinion found that there was no indication that defendant had any objection to the determinations of the treating physicians or wished to obtain a QME evaluation to contest them. Therefore, the defendant is not now entitled to designate the specialty of the QME panel. The court of appeal ruled that the claim of the victim of district attorney sexual harassment. Was barred by the exclusive remedy provisions of the workers' compensation law. Here's what happened in the unpublished Court of Appeal opinion of Cheryl Risto versus the County of San Bernardino. Cheryl Risto was hired by the San Bernardino County District Attorney's Office in 2002 as an investigative technician. According to the allegations of her complaint in 2003, Risto and San Bernardino County District Attorney Michael A. Ramos were at a conference center in the city of Lake Arrowhead. While at the conference center, Risto and Ramos began a consensual sexual relationship which continued up through December 2004. Near the end of the relationship, she claims there was an unwanted sexual touching. Five years later, in 2009, A local newspaper published information about Risto and Ramos's relationship, creating a local scandal. Three days later, Mr. Ramos instructed Risto to deny their relationship and informed her that he would also be denying the relationship. Later, a senior investigator in the office informed Risto that she should not come forward with information concerning her relationship with Mr. Ramos. Risto's supervisor then issued her a written reprimand for violating the office dress code policy for displaying a nose ring and a tattoo. However, Risto received the nose ring and tattoo years before being reprimanded. The following day, Risto complained that she was placed on medical leave for her employment due to stress and then two investigators from the office arrived at her residence at the request of Mr. Ramos. Allegedly, the investigators approached her with their hands on their guns and gave her a letter. It is unclear what information was in this letter. Risto then returned to work in late 2009, but found her desk had been emptied and her nameplate had been removed. Risto then sued the county and District Attorney Ramos for sexual harassment, retaliation, and assault and battery, among other things. The trial court sustained the employer's demurs without leave to amend, and her case was dismissed. On appeal, the Court of Appeal agreed that her claims for events back in 2004 were time-barred, and the court looked only to the sufficiency of her claims for conduct after 2009. Typically, when a co-worker is injured by another co-worker, The injured co-worker may only seek compensation through the worker's compensation system. However, the injured co-worker can bring an action for damages directly against the co-worker if the injured employee's harm was proximately caused by the willful and unprovoked physical act of aggression of the other employee. Using this principle, the court concluded that Risto does not assert an act of physical aggression by Mr. Ramos, Ramos can only be exempt from the workers' compensation scheme of laws if Risto's injury was approximately caused by Ramos's willful and unprovoked physical act of aggression. Since her allegations do not support this exception, the judgment of dismissal of her claim was affirmed. And now our fraud report. A medical doctor and an owner of a medical supply company were charged with submitting $1.3 million in fraudulent power wheelchair claims to Medicare. Dr. Irving Schwartz was arrested in Yuba City and arraigned on one count of conspiracy to receive health care kickbacks and defrauding Medicare. Jose Melendez, the owner and operator of Oceanside Medical Services, was arrested in Long Beach and arraigned on charges of conspiracy, witness tampering, and health care fraud. The scheme allegedly focused on the sale of fraudulent power wheelchair prescriptions, with the end goal being to obtain reimbursements from Medicare for power wheelchairs that patients did not need and in some cases did not want. The indictment alleges that Schwartz and a co-conspirator would travel to El Centro, California in search of elderly Medicare patients. Schwartz would write the patient's prescriptions for power wheelchairs, even though the patients did not need the equipment and could walk without assistance. Schwartz collected a $300 cash kickback in exchange for each power wheelchair prescription he wrote. One of Schwartz's co-conspirators would then sell the power wheelchair prescriptions to Melendez, charging him $1,000 per fraudulent prescription. Melendez, in turn, sold some of the power wheelchair prescriptions to other co-conspirators, charging an additional markup on each one. As the last step in the scheme, owners of medical supply companies would submit the fraudulent prescriptions to Medicare for reimbursement, billing up to $5,865 for each power wheelchair. The indictment further alleges that Melendez attempted to persuade one of the co-conspirators to lie to federal agents in an effort to hinder the Medicare fraud investigation. If convicted, Schwartz faces a maximum penalty of five years and Melendez faces a maximum penalty of 20 years in prison. In separate but related cases, three co-conspirators, Gloria Hernandez, Aristio Trevarez, and Laura Trevarez, the owners of a l Medical Supply in Fullerton, have pled guilty and face a maximum of 10 years in prison. All the defendants each also face a maximum $250,000 fine and a mandatory order of restitution to repay the fraudulently obtained proceeds of the scheme. 60-year-old Michael McCree and his wife, 59-year-old Deborah Fields, both of Vacaville, were charged in two separate federal indictments for fraud. McCree was charged with 18 counts of making false statements in order to receive workers' compensation and other compensations and reimbursements. McCree worked for the U.S. Postal Service for six months back in 1988 and 1989 before filing a workers' compensation claim for an alleged back injury. Since 1989, the Department of Labor has been paying McCree monthly wage loss compensation and reimbursement for medical-related travel. McCree received more than $120,000 in reimbursements for travel from January 2007 through June 2012, but according to court documents, he did not travel to the location listed and did not receive medical treatment. According to the indictments, Fields is charged with three counts, concealing property, making a false oath, and making a false statement. In June 2011, she filed for bankruptcy, and was discharged of her debts that she listed as more than $550,000. Fields did not disclose that her husband was receiving monthly wage loss payments and reimbursements for travel. She also failed to disclose some of McCree's bank accounts. If convicted, McCree faces a maximum statutory penalty of 20 years in prison and a $250,000 fine. Fields faces a maximum sentence of five years in prison for each count. A new national anti-fraud partnership has been created to fight medical fraud rings. The coalition is a non-profit alliance of insurers, consumers, and government agencies fighting all forms of insurance fraud. The partnership includes Health and Human Services, the Department of Justice, the NICB, the NAIC, private health plans, property and casualty insurers, and major anti-fraud organizations. The group includes auto and workers' comp as part of its focus, with health care as a key emphasis. The new partnership unites the public and private insurers, which creates a strong force multiplier and national strategy to increase upward pressure on fraud rings and downward pressure on medical premiums. It is based on information sharing between public and private insurers. Increasingly, the same dishonest medical providers are defrauding private, auto, workers' compensation, and health insurers, but also taxpayer-funded programs such as Medicare and Medicaid. Partnership officials congratulated HHS Secretary Kathleen Sibelius and Attorney General Eric Holder for taking this bold step. Coalition officials say... This high level of collaboration greatly increases the chances of earlier detection and successful prosecution. Over time, the coordination of anti-fraud intelligence and strategy will help shut down more medical schemes involving health, auto, and workers' compensation. Some estimates peg Medicare fraud alone at $60 billion annually. The FBI says all health care fraud could reach $80 billion a year. Fraud rings are surfacing that try to steal several hundred million dollars each. And in medical news, some pharmaceutical companies claim they are now changing their focus to research on bioelectronics as a new product line. Officials at GlaxoSmithKline, one of the world's most powerful pharmaceutical companies, say they are focusing research on new bioelectronics as a new product. The drug company wants to become the first large company to make bioelectronics a central plank in its long-term planning. The sciences that underpin bioelectronics are proceeding at an amazing pace at academic centers around the world. The challenge is to integrate the work in brain-computer interfaces, material science, nanotechnology, micropower generation to provide therapeutic benefit. This phenomena is in its infancy. Although Glasgow appears to be ahead of the competition in preparing for this transformation of the industry, it is not yet ready to pump large amounts of direct funding into bioelectronics. Instead, the company is preparing to play a coordinating role. That will involve setting up a bioelectronics institute, offering a large prize for innovation, and pulling in funds from endowments and venture capitalists. Work is currently mainly conducted in universities, and commercialization remains extremely limited. Some of the best bioengineers in the U.S., including John Rogers of the University of Illinois, Brian Litt of the University of Pennsylvania, and Jonathan Viventi of New York University, are developing a new generation of soft computer interfaces made with flexible silicon circuitry that can bend and stretch to match the curves of the brain. Their smart skin is particularly well-suited to investigate and later treat epilepsy. It will be implemented under the skull, lying on the top of the brain, but not penetrating the gray matter. Professor Viventi hopes there will be human testing within a year or two to see how seizures move across the brain. Johns Hopkins scientists have discovered a scaffolding protein that holds together multiple elements in a complex system responsible for regulating pain, mental illnesses, and other complex neurological problems. The finding, published in the May 6th issue of Nature Neuroscience, could give researchers a new target for drugs to treat these often intractable conditions. The discovery by researchers at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine focuses on a family of proteins called Group 1 metatropic glutamate receptors that lie on the surfaces of nerve cells. When these receptors lock in glutamate, a chemical that neurons use to communicate, it encourages neurons to fire. Without a way to turn off these receptors, neurons would remain active indefinitely, keeping pain and other responses going long after they are useful. This research will lead the way to better pain management for injured workers and others. This work was supported by grants from several national organizations. And in regulatory news, the WCAB 2011 Ethics Committee report finds eight cases of work comp judge misconduct. The Ethics Advisory Committee is charged with reviewing and monitoring complaints of misconduct filed against workers' compensation and administrative law judges. Out of the 41 new complaints reviewed in 2011, 18 resulted in investigations and violations were found in eight. The administrative director has taken appropriate corrective action in each of the eight cases. In one of the eight cases, the defense attorney complained that the judge prejudged a Labor Code Section 132A discrimination case because the judge stated on three occasions before the trial was completed that if the defendant did not settle, the applicant would prevail in the case. The judge issued a decision finding for the applicant and the complainant eventually prevailed on reconsideration. The defense attorneys alleged the judge's attempt to strong-arm a settlement by threatening the defendant with an adverse outcome reflected bias and was not proper. In another case, an applicant's attorney alleged the judge criticized the complainant in front of the client by making the suggestion in open court that perhaps the complainant should consider retirement. In a third case, a defense attorney complained that the judge told the attorneys the judge was retiring at the end of the month. He stamped the judge's name on the pretrial conference statement, yelled at the attorneys that the judge did not care what the parties did and refused to make a ruling on the party's request. The judge allegedly stated in a contemptuous manner to a female attorney who was president that he did not think girls are capable of trying any case. An applicant's attorney alleged that a judge approached the complainant in the hallway with an intimidating facial expression and without warning physically removed documents from his person. The complainant was offended, intimidated, and frightened by the judge's behavior. The committee investigated an anonymous complaint that was filed stating the judge conducted proceedings in an informal, noisy, disruptive, and unprofessional manner. This complaint observed the judge raising the voice at parties, appearing before the judge, and frequently losing the composure and berating members of the public. In another case, a defense attorney complained the judge acted in an inappropriate manner in handling a settlement case by personally meeting with the disability evaluation rater to arrive at a rating different from the rating which formed the basis of the settlement. Another anonymous complaint was filed alleging the judge, who was already assigned to the case, approached the parties while they were completing a pre-trial conference statement, inquired whether the judge could assist the parties. The judge then proceeded to discuss the merits of the case and tell the parties how the judge would rule on the case. A defense attorney complained the judge assigned to the case received an ex-party communication from the applicant, and had the judge's secretary contact one of the attorneys in the law firm with questions on the case. And in financial news, workers' compensation insurance prices are increasing substantially in some cases, and policy offerings are diminishing as insurers seek to address unprofitable combined ratios. Liberty Mutual Group Incorporated, for example, on the average, said that it secured a 9% overall rate increase for workers' comp policies that were sold during the second quarter of 2012. Some brokers now report that as a result, some employers are exiting workers' comp guaranteed cost policies that have fixed costs and taking on greater risk by purchasing loss-sensitive plans with lower premiums but higher deductibles. Companies are doing so because workers' comp insurers are shrinking their offerings or raising policy prices, particularly for guaranteed cost coverage. The loss-sensitive plans increase employers' responsibility for claims management because such plans often come with higher deductibles that hold them accountable. But loss-sensitive programs are not for every company. One reason is that workers' comp insurers' underwriting for a large deductible policy scrutinize the employer's income statement and balance sheet to make sure policyholders can provide the collateral insurers require from an employer to secure potential losses within the deductible. Regardless of the costs and the increased scrutiny, more employers are still making the move to loss-sensitive work comp coverage. The move is mostly but not entirely affecting mid-sized policyholders. Some larger employers that purchased guaranteed-cost policies the past few years during the soft insurance market cycle when the price of such such coverage was cheap are also shifting back to loss-sensitive programs. Experts say that shifting between guaranteed-cost and loss-sensitive workers' comp coverage is common when insurance market cycles Firm or soften. And with that, that's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or iPod by searching for WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.